Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. I'm speaking to you from Vox Media Headquarters in New York City. I'm speaking with John Harris, one of the co-founders of Politico. John, what's your current title? Uh, I think I'm called the founding editor. Uh, it's uh, a title I'm just getting used to. I don't use it much. You, but, up uh, until recently, you were editor-in-chief. That's right. Uh, you stepped down in spring? In the spring, I guess in uh, mid-April or so. Uh, you founded Politico in 2007. Do I have the date right? More or less. Our first issue was in January 23rd, 2007, just as the 2007-2008 campaign was underway. I left the Post, uh, where I had been for 20-plus years, uh, the Washington years, Post. the Washington Post, in uh, November, uh, right around Thanksgiving. You and Jim Vandehei yeah. uh, created it at the time. A lot of sort of raised eyebrows. What is this What the hell thing? are we doing? Yes. What is Politico going to be? There's a lot of criticism of Politico for a long time, and now— 12 years later, you guys are just part of the firmament in a good way. Um, you, you are sort of a standard version of Washington reporting. You are a digital media success story. We are. You were profitable last year. We are. You're based mostly around a subscription model, which now everyone wants to have a piece of. Um, and you sort of define the way Washington politics is covered. Also, who covers Washington politics? Your alumni are scattered throughout the media stratosphere. So that's a good, it's a good time to talk to you about all that. Sure. And I will say that we are a, a subscription model for about, um, I think, roughly 60% of our revenue, 40%, still a good bit coming from advertising. The way we think of it is our, we've got a consumer business, which is anybody who's interested in uh, politics coming to our site, politics and government coming to our site. And uh, we don't have a paywall there. We're not likely to. Uh, that's advertising supported. Our events are largely advertising supported. Our uh, subscription business is uh, for people who have a kind of a professional interest in this. The average person wouldn't probably pay a couple thousand or in some cases uh, many thousands of dollars for really intensive policy coverage. That's our professional business. I was reading an interview with uh, your funder, Mr. Albritton, uh, and he said, you know, you could, basically your core audience is five to 10,000 people. I'm assuming you think it's bigger than that. I don't know. I'm reluctant to ever uh, disagree with uh, Robert, uh, a man of great wisdom. Uh, and, and pays uh, your salary. And, and who does pay my salary and owns the place. I, I think of it as a good bit larger. There's about 300,000 people who uh, uh, seem to be addicted uh, to yes. us coming several times a day. And then, like everybody else, we can uh, spike to many millions on big days or people come and go. A lot of times in this environment, people aren't necessarily even aware of uh, what they're reading. Yeah. Uh, of what they're reading. They, they bounce here and bounce yeah, there. But of, our, of our, our core audience, it's probably growing. The 300,000 is one I, I would have cited a couple of years ago. It's probably a half million people who really have the bug bad for whatever reason, and they really have an intimate relationship with us. Probably what Robert meant by the 10,000 is the, that group of people, uh, they're in 
primarily in three cities, Washington, New York, and Brussels, uh, who are major customers of ours, and they, they uh, are they subscribers need to, do to our job. professional services. They regard us as important doing their job. And their employers pay for it, most and likely. And in most cases, their employers pay for it. Somewhat inelastic demand curve um, because they uh, makes them more effective and therefore it makes them more money. And I think probably that's what Robert meant by uh, yeah. the 10,000. So a really important part of our business model, but uh, it, it's only a, a piece of our larger editorial model. So you know it works because people use you as sort of a as a standard sort of uh, noun, right? Xerox or Kleenex or it's a Politico for we had Emily Ramshaw from the Texas <laughs> Review and their shorthand was they were creating Politico for Texas, right? And Jessica Lesson has created sort of Politico for tech executives nice and investors. Um, but when you guys started this in 2007, I mean, there had been trade publications and newsletters for a while, but you would you, you and Jim Vandeheim were both very successful at the Post, left to create this new thing. What was the impetus and why couldn't you do it at the Post? Well, we saw the world, uh, certainly that I grew up in, I sometimes refer to it as the old order, uh, in which you had a handful of uh, really powerful news organizations that had disproportionate uh, power to set the agenda on the on the topics that I care most about or the ones I've organized my career around, yeah, and you which is politics in Washington. And uh, you saw that old order crumbling, um, and even more... Uh, uh, the business model that supported that old order was crumbling, but not just the business model, uh, the editorial model, which says, look, something's on the front page of the Washington Post or the New York Times. Therefore, almost by definition, it's the most important story in politics that day. Uh, that was becoming defunct. All kinds of places were um, – might make a claim to being the most important story in politics that day or as the news cycle sped up that hour. And so that old order, I found pretty comfortable. I would have been happy to stay in it, but it was crumbling. Did so you and the question like, was, what's next? Was the, was the risk that the Post couldn't keep up with the pace or that the Post, you could even see in 2006, the financially was going to be in real trouble? There was a clear sense, uh, palpable, I'd say, of relative decline and anxiety. No, it's not like the anxiety didn't have uh, – first, it was rooted in, in – it wasn't irrational. It was rooted in circumstances, but it wasn't like there w wasn't a pathway forward to that. Um, I had some concern about the post in that it was uh, – it didn't seem to be robustly exploring those pathways uh, forward. Um, and uh, at that time, had kind of a backward-looking gaze. I'll emphasize at that time because it did, it did shift. We could have started something like this at the post. We act and talked uh, about it a lot. Uh, had um, an offer to stay at the Post and do it. To me, uh, and this was really more of a personal decision rather than a reflection of any uh, thing or anybody at the Post, it just was much more intriguing opportunity start a new thing. to start from scratch and, and to really start with a, a blank slate. And this is sort of— in I think in retrospect, by the way, Peter, that probably was the right decision. I'm not sure, even with best intentions by us and others, uh, that this would have taken root uh, in the Post What uh, what would, What is the— the chance, because there's another version of this, which it, which is why we have Vox.com, right? We have Ezra Klein and Melissa Bell leaving the Washington Post. Had a new thing here, basically, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, there's different versions of that story, but basically, they concluded they were better off building this thing outside of the Washington Post than inside. What makes it difficult for the Post specifically, or or any media legacy company, legacy media company, to sort of incubate a new thing like this? Um, that there's different imperatives within the organization, uh, and uh, those other imperatives are usually going to be superior to the new imperative, right? Because they've got a lot of money behind it. They've got formidable uh, uh, we have this business behind them. Money. Got procedures. Here's how we do things, and uh, it's I'd say it's just uh, harder. 
uh, you have to compete and you probably would compete in an inferior position for attention, resources, uh, kind of uh, uh, the, the sort of intangible oomph, which is what makes uh, Politico go or Vox go or anybody who starts uh, uh, something new. Um so I would say that's why. When you left the Don Graham on the post, you sent, sold it to Jeff Bezos. Mm-hmm. Do you think under the Bezos post you could have created this? Do you think they're uh, Jeff Bezos? Well, I think Bezos? we could have done it under yeah. the Graham post too. I think it yeah. just would have been uh, it would have been harder, and uh, uh, I think it was uh, more fun to start from scratch. Um, to some extent, it's. Uh, uh, you take away the net, it concentrates the mind. So um, when you, when you guys— I think the, uh, the, it might have worked at the Post. It would have been harder. And uh, I, I think the Post is uh, like the Times, like other, you know, what we then called uh, old media organizations. I think the phrase is defunct because everybody's a new media organization uh, these days. But the, uh, I, I think there's lots of innovation going on at big institutions and small ones. When you guys started Politico, the sort of snapshot— description of you was dismissive. It was, you've got all these young people running around, cranking out stories at this crazy pace, which then was sort of becoming standard for, like, blogs, but for newspapers and news organizations seemed weird, and and, and blackberrying out almost the most banal stuff. This thing just happened, so-and-so, uh, so-and-so was spotted at lunch, and, and just this just wave of stuff coming out, sort of undifferentiated. Um, and there was a sort of, like, well, this idea that like this obviously is not what people want. This is some sort of parody of, of new media. Did you feel that? Do you think that was a fair description of what you were doing? No. Uh, <laughs> I guess that's don't. Uh, I get it. Uh, we were covering politics seriously, but we were also covering it as sport and as entertainment. And this uh, is pre-Twitter. We were, I think Twitter existed technically, but it certainly wasn't in the world. It certainly wasn't part of our lives yeah. uh, in this uh, 2007 time period. What, maybe it started in 2005 or six or something like that, but it didn't really burst yeah. our consciousness till maybe 2009, 10. No, I don't. Uh, we, we definitely had a different approach, uh, uh, a different kind of mania uh, to our interests, a uh, different voice. And uh, uh, no question, it did great on people. And we were young, and so we made uh, kind of young mistakes. Uh, but I, I don't think that we were organized then around uh, just bullshit. And, uh, you know, the, the signature uh, personalities of that time, their friends, I'm proud of them. Uh, you know, Jonathan Martin's the chief political correspondent mm-hmm. uh, for the New York Times, uh, Ben Smith who was our blog. Jonathan was covering the uh, GOP politics with a blog. Ben uh, was doing uh, the same on the Democratic side. And you know, Ben is obviously one of the uh, substantial people in media innovation right now over at BuzzFeed. Uh, so I think you go back and look at that. Uh, Maggie Haberman. Stuff. That's a pretty good roster yeah. of people who have come through the Politico newsroom, uh, enriched it while they're there, but I think themselves were enriched by our, our, our sensibility and our, our take on things. And we keep growing a new... A new crop. So no, I, I don't really buy that. What was a good? What was a young person mistake? A young founder mistake that you made that you now see pretty clearly. Well, Ben can handle it because right, he's uh, uh, now gone on to, to fame and fortune. Uh, Had a reasonably thick skin. Uh, he <laughs> screwed up. Uh, John Edwards uh, dropping out of the uh, presidential campaign, yeah. um, and so that was really a kind of a kick that we didn't need uh, as a site then was two months old. You got the story wrong, to be clear. To be clear, he just got it premature uh, by eventually uh, right. uh, yeah. uh, six months, eight months, something like that. But he would uh, put on his blog that Edwards was about to drop out of the presidential campaign because of his wife's uh, illness. And I remember it was a sickening feeling. 
Uh, I walked out of the newsroom and I was all proud because the cable networks were all up and citing Politico. At that time, some of them still said the Politico. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I thought, man, we put this thing on the map. And I got a call. It was from Jen Palmieri, uh, who was then working for John Edwards, but she's later become uh, worked for uh, President Obama and and Secretary Clinton and has written a book. Uh, And uh, she called me, you know, uh, uh, you're not going to like this story. This is not good. And uh, you're going to be wrong and be proven wrong in about 10 minutes. Uh, so that was a horrible day for Ben, horrible day for me. It seemed like the end of the world at the time. But, you know, damn it, this is what you do at the uh, uh, at, at Politico, what we did is the same thing I think anybody should do uh, uh, now. So, like, just own the mistake. Uh, we had that mistake up on our uh, uh, our side for maybe 20 minutes before it was corrected. We had this long, drawn-out, proctological uh, examination of what happened, uh-huh. and that was up on our site for probably three days. So take your lumps, brush off, move on. Was the business model the primarily subscription with some advertising, uh, a core audience paying a lot of money to read your really granular stuff, and then a drive-by audience, an audience that comes by periodically uh, reading you for free? Mm-hmm. Was that the model from the get-go as well? It was not, no. We were a new publication with, I think, a new sensibility, a new way of covering politics. But at that time, we were really uh, relying on a pretty old and trusted uh, business model, which was there's a fair amount of money in Washington spent trying to reach uh, influentials, uh, as they're called, the sort of members of Congress, uh, the political class generally. Uh, and they'd been spending money for years and years on uh, – uh, kind of small scale. It's publications, trade cap. publications, yeah, and they, they also spend it on, um, on Meet the Press, right? When you see an ad for ADM or Cargo, right or General right? Electric, you think, like, what are they? Why are they doing right. this? And so they know who's watching, and they want to uh, shape perceptions among that crowd. So basically, we were dipping our our bucket in a in a demonstrated uh, current of revenue, um, but doing it to to build a different kind of publication. The limits of that, first off, it worked. And we probably grew the pie, but we were also stealing other people's pie. It worked, um, but it was we saw it as limited. It was only going to keep us a certain size, and we had bigger ambitions than that. And that's where the subscription dimension of our business model came from. Uh, which oh, so, so the, uh, first, initially you were going to sell ads to the lobbyists. We did, and, and, right. and, and we made a lot of money, but it was it, it, we didn't see it as being. Uh, we saw it as being bracketed um, in a way that uh, we had to break through. Yeah. So effectively, in the first wave, what we did is take the classic sort of roll call hill national journal and, and supercharge it with uh, uh, Some more more repertorial horsepower and, and a different style. And then the second wave, what we did is we took the uh, classic uh, trade press, you know, Energy Report, uh, Agriculture Weekly, or whatever, which was had been around for a few decades, um, and and supercharged that, um, and, and did it in real time. How long? How long did it take you to figure that out? Because that's that is sort of what has made your business work. Well, both things make the, the yep. work, and they they work in tandem. Um, uh, but that was three years in when we launched that. Um, we still rely on ads. We're going to hear from someone who may be an advertiser, or perhaps they're one of my colleagues from Vox Media. We'll be right back. This week on The Pitch, we're back to pitches. And this one's coming from my job. What Podcast AI does is it lets podcast producers become 10 times more productive. How much are you charging The Pitch? We're charging $99 
and Josh came in right before we doubled our prices. Mm. Mm. What's keeping something like a restream from just going like, yep, we do all this AI now stuff too? So there's a lot of these older companies that are tacking on AI, mm-hmm. and that's kind of the issue. They're tacking it on. You built this really quickly. What's to stop anybody else from doing this? What's, what's the moat? How do you build a moat when you're building with AI? That's this week on The Pitch. Go right now and subscribe to The Pitch wherever you listen to podcasts. Back here with John Harris. You are watching in real time everyone try to launch a subscription business or put up a paywall or or reorient what had been a free website into something else. What can someone who's trying to figure out how to launch a subscription business today, whether it's starting from scratch or bolting it on to an existing one, learn from your experience? The one constant that I believed when we started Politico, I still believe it now. Lots of things have happened that I didn't forecast, and um, uh, lots of the ball bounces in funny ways, and, and uh, this, uh, thing, a lot of things are very different. But one thing is the same, which is I think you have to be producing content that can somehow capture a premium that somehow doesn't uh, uh, get commoditized. I mean, there's two ways to capture a premium. One is to build an, uh, an audience that's uh, engaged enough and attractive enough uh, that you can uh, not charge a couple of uh, uh, cents uh, uh, per CPM, but you can charge, uh, you know, many tens of dollars, hundreds of dollars uh, for every thousand readers. Um, that's capturing a premium. The other way to do it is to produce content that somebody finds valuable enough yep. that they're going to pay for it. And I would say the, the subscription lesson is... Uh, People aren't going to, um, I think, unless it's just a couple of bucks, uh, pay for, uh, gosh, those guys sure need a helping hand. And, uh, you know, I read it, so why don't I chip in sort of a right. maybe the PBS uh, yep. Pledge Week model. And maybe that works for them. But I don't think it's very promising for most people uh, and most publications so that producing that makes sense as a business produce value of some kind and get people hooked. I mean, that's what the New York Times has done. Uh uh, certainly, I'll pay for it. I, I, it would be hard for me to envision my life as a, a, a consumer of the news, as, as somebody who cares about lots of different subjects, without paying the uh, the, the the dough. Make a thing people want to buy is, yeah. a, is a good lesson, and and it works for the Times and the Journal and the Washington Post and you guys in a different version. Um, it seems like. It is not going to work or certainly hasn't been proven to work in mid-markets, small markets. And we've talked a bunch on this podcast about what that means, and it's bad. Do you think there's a a subscription model that works in a small town and even a medium-sized town for news? You sure hope so because the alternative is so unattractive. And uh, Dean McKay says they're all going to go out of business in five years. Dean McKay said that. Yeah, the majority of them. Well— I think he's got to be wrong, or maybe they go out of business in their current incarnation, but uh, something comes up that replicates the function because I do think there's demand for it. And incidentally, uh, the Times is a pretty good illustration, right? Five years ago, certainly 10 years ago, he's like, ah, it's just, it's uh, inconceivable to imagine the Times and the sort of it's robust. Right, even if you thought they were going to survive, you thought they were like going to The business decay. model is, is too challenged. It's going to be it's going to be crippled. And if they'd stayed on that trajectory, that would have been true. Right. They needed a high People interest loan. circumstances, and, yeah. and they uh, uh, they changed their trajectory. We've been waiting for that to happen uh, in uh, 
uh, in the mid-markets, and I think the evidence is pretty mixed. You know, you and I were talking before we went on here from the, the Twin Cities in Minnesota. I like I watch closely uh, just because I've been reading it for so long. I happen to know the editor, uh, Renee Sanchez, at the at the Star Tribune in Minneapolis, uh, and uh, they seem to maybe not prosper like they did in the old days, but put out a, a, a good publication, uh, not with a single sort of, aha, here's the formula, but with a bunch of different uh, it's experiments. Good, it's good meat and potato stuff. It's also owned by a, a local billionaire, which yeah, is the other model. But is he subsidizing it indefinitely? I don't know. He probably is uh, indifferent to quarterly fluctuations in the way that markets uh, would That's be. how he runs his basketball team, too. Uh, I mean, so there's got to be an answer, but I, I think you'd have to say the evidence so far yeah. is that the, the nobody's had a really persuasive or seemingly enduring example. And you guys have tried taking this model to other markets. In some cases, it looks like it's worked. Uh, Brussels, right? You mentioned you've got an international version. We do. We've got a you know, business and editorial over there. We must have 130, 140 you, people. You tried doing this in New York with sort of a media-focused thing and local city stuff, and that did not work. Well, we still have a robust uh, New York presence. But you had a product that, that was aimed at New York people that you were selling and didn't seem to work. That, uh, that media platform, yeah, didn't... Uh, Plenty of people liked it, and I thought mm-hmm. the content was good. You know, for us, the uh, we don't do stuff. Uh, we do it partly to earn scouting uh, merit badges, but we don't do it exclusively right. that. And, and uh, we've got an owner that holds us to a pretty disciplined but standard. Something's got to be. Is there something meaningful that, business? Is there something meaningful that you learn? They're like, all right, this kind of market. We thought media was a good market. Tons of media people in New York. Turns out. They actually don't want to spend money. They're a bad market. Um, or maybe we had the wrong product or or this is why it is working internationally. What's the is there a, is there a lesson learned there? I don't know that we did a systematic review of the lessons learned. My sense is that they uh, we just didn't uh, we went into into crowded, somewhat crowded space. And uh, we didn't find an audience that says, I need this so much, I'm, I'm going to pay for it. Yeah. Uh, they'd be happy to keep consuming it and, and uh, dining out on it for free, but that wasn't in our interests. What has changed for you guys in the Trump era? Um, obviously, a lot more focus, a lot more just international and national focus on Washington in general, in large part because it's a carnival and, or worse. There's obvious reasons to be interested in that. Um, but there's obviously a lot of publications covering it now that mm-hmm. with renewed interest. So what yeah. does that mean for Politico? I think we always have looked for a place that uh, uh, what's our distinctive uh, what's our distinctive role? What's our distinctive place in the in the sort of media food chain? Uh, what's our the economist phrase? What's our comparative advantage? Our comparative advantage a decade ago, uh, uh, that's been er- eroded. Uh, you know, there's plenty of people that write with speed. You're never going to be faster than Twitter. Uh, there's plenty of uh, people that uh, the thing, the liberated thing, from the convention. Right, so the, the, thing, that you, ta- uh, the thing you were doing on your uh, own, the things you were voice, doing on yeah, your own. that you can't, is not the comparative advantage. Uh-huh. We think our comparative advantage is we've got, uh, I think it's the largest policy newsroom uh, in uh, Washington. We're certainly the only publication that has major political and policy newsrooms in the two biggest uh, political and regulatory capitals of the Western world uh, in the in Brussels with all the EU uh, apparatus and enormously uh, important policymaking uh, and matching that up with uh, major uh, presence in Washington and increasingly vigorous presence in the states, including the largest state, uh, California. I think that's where we we, we see us uh, 
building kind of editorial bridges uh, in ways that are uh, uh, produced. Did you have a Trump bump? Uh, you know, the Times has talked about the fact that they definitely saw subscriptions go up, part because people wanted the news, partly because mm-hmm. they want to support the Times. I assume it's a different dynamic for you guys. Well, we don't have a consumer subscription right. uh, base. So we see the Trump bump in terms of our audience. Yep. Sure. Which, again, they're but reading that's it for not, free. that's not, uh, we, which we love. We have to, uh, um, that's why we're in business as journalists, uh, because we want to connect with people that have impact. Um, it's not central to our business model, that Trump bump. But really good question. Um, I'm sure that, you know, you've tackled it quite a bit here, which is uh, uh, every tide that rolls in rolls out. Um, and there's two tides going on right now that have been good for media. One is a very strong economy. Two is this tremendous surge of interest uh, in our work uh, because of Trump. Uh, I don't know when either of those things end. All I know is that they, they both do. And one hopes that the, the, the kind of the most creative and most disciplined companies have used the tide uh, uh, at flow to build like enduring, sustainable models, e- even when the tides had happened. You guys have this studiously neutral model, right? I think it's both uh, in terms of politics, right? We want to be very even. We're just right down the middle. We're not going to take sides. It used to be a sort of conventional news model and now sort of in part because of Trump, but just the way media is working. People are getting more strident one way or another, and this is left-leaning news or right-leaning news. And that's, by the way, not a new thing, but newish now. There was a story I was reading when I was uh, looking you up uh, in advance about about you making a joke about Trump being a white nationalist um, on Twitter. Yeah, it was— Guy uh, guy gets in trouble on Twitter is an old story. But I'm thinking—and so you had to sort of back down and apologize. I'm thinking after the events of this weekend, we're taping this after Trump had told four congressmen to go back to their countries. Um, Whether you think, man, I I shouldn't have backed down. That was was an an factually correct thing that I wrote, and I should have just— Said that's a true thing. Uh, the, the 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 tweet was a, a sort of a wise ass yeah, uh, remark that uh, wasn't uh, correctly um, interpreted. And uh, I'm Twitter's important. You can have some fun on Twitter. Uh, I'm kind of late to the party just because I've been doing other things, uh, uh, running Politico during the surge. Uh, one thing it's not good at is is being sort of clear about what your yeah. serious uh, point is. If I've got a serious point, uh, I've got more than almost anybody, I've got venues uh, to make it. So, yeah, I, I did uh, back off from a, a sort of wise-ass remark uh, just because I think it was uh, too subject to misinterpretation. And I would say, uh, particularly in the role I held then when I was editor-in-chief, I'm now founding editor, I really have a responsibility um, not just to readers but to other staff. And so I, I didn't like the fact that uh, but what about uh, this idea that- my own staff would say, well, John can uh, pop off uh, with a kind of a Powell snap mm-hmm. remark. Your general point as to what Trump represents, uh, I mean, I'll talk about that seriously. This is a, a venue in which one can yeah. ventilate serious ideas. Uh, there is an idea, and I think it's correct, that a lot, one of the real problems facing media coverage in Trump era is that the norms and standards that people use to describe left side and the right side and Democrat and Republican are out the window here, and the media really struggles when Trump stands up and tells a lie. They're very reluctant to say he lied. They'll say it's an untruth or a thing that is not true. And is they that right, Peter? I, I sort of see that— uh that is moving. A prism uh, that you uh, described. I remember that very much in the uh, Bush years. Uh, you know, we've got to liberate ourselves from these uh, 
conventions of journalism, which yeah, are the, uh, they, the obstacle to truth. But uh, they still sort I don't of see that as so much in uh, the Trump a, area. What people will say, well, the president lied or what have Well, they're you. getting there, right? And like one of the stories this weekend uh, was, well, all right, they're finally, the newspapers are finally, and, and media organizations are finally saying these were racist tweets instead of mm. racially tinged tweets or what some call racist or whatever. They were just saying these are racist. We've thought about it. But we had to have a discussion about it. And my point is, for Politico, again, which has studiously been sort of, we're right down the middle and and everyone's voice is sort of equal in terms of who we talk to, mm-hmm. in part because we want to serve a wide spectrum of people. Sure. Um, it seems like that would be a challenge for you, but maybe not. Um, it's somewhat of a challenge, and there definitely was discussion of it in the newsroom this week on uh, how to describe the president's tweets and certainly uh, other news organizations that see themselves as— uh, is also trying to be uh, occupying a, a, a sort of factual center rather than being an ideologically driven CNN. Uh, I, I saw their headline, uh, Trump denies racist tweets yeah. or racist. Yeah. Um, the only thing I would say is I, I would urge uh, my colleagues at Politico and elsewhere, like, nah, to spend too much time getting worked up on that. Um, I don't, uh, we should tell the truth as we see it. With respect for the audience, uh, which means not couching things that we know to be true, but also means not uh, uh, imagining that they're looking to us uh, as the to lay down the law as arbiters of uh, 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 that's racist or it's not racist. Um, uh, and with enough humility to know that, you know, there's not many things that are people don't look at from some multiple perspectives uh, and— uh, that there's some validity to it. I mean, there's some things that don't lend themselves to that. Like, we're, I look outside the window now, it's a very sunny day in New York. There, there's no, somebody could say it's raining. It's mm-hmm. just not true. Most uh, things in politics don't really lend themselves. So you still are that. comfortable uh, with the idea that even in a Trump era, um, that things are nuanced and one, person, one person's, one person's me, lie yeah. is, is someone else's not correct statement? Um, it would depend on the examples I can't uh, answer in the abstract because some cases are like, well, that's just false. Uh, there's no demonstrated connection between Saddam Hussein and 9-11. That's one, well, you can say you think it's true or it should be true or you have a hunch yep. it's true, but there, there's no demonstrated connection. Just to pull a, a I guess, a celebrated example from way back, it's impossible for me to answer in the abstract. Uh I guess what I'm saying is I don't really regard it as a, a, a sort of a sacred matter um, the way printing something knowingly false, making up details, mm-hmm. uh, like that, that's really a okay. sacred violation. I just think it's a, a little bit of a—it uh, just seems a little pompous to me. Uh, like, Media people all, being pompous, <laughs> John. Let's all, John. Let's all pat ourselves on the back because yeah. we had the nerve to, like, oh, we call it like it is, as though— it is so condescending uh, to the audience who uh, is uh, full of discerning, intelligent people who can make these judgments for themselves. I do think uh, one of— looking to, to uh, John Harris or, or my successors, Carrie uh, uh, Budoff Brown or Matt Kaminsky or Dean Baquet to, uh, oh, thank goodness he, he reached an oracular judgment on highs to what it is. I think I, that is I, part I of the— I think it that is— ourselves up too much. I think that is part of the— the thrust, though, is, is from the audience. Again, it's on Twitter, which is not the real world. It's mm-hmm. Twitter saying, you must call this a lie. We are your audience. If you're not going to speak the truth, if you're not going to describe this accurately, then we're screwed. If you guys have to dance around what is an obvious untruth and you have to bend over backwards yeah. to not say that, then what, what are we going to get done? 
I guess I don't think he should bend over backwards. I just think he should approach yes. the task with a, a certain amount of, uh, of modesty and respect for the audience. Certainly none of those people that say that uh, usually say, I myself was duped. I thought this uh, was true because uh, uh, the New York Times was so delicate and so uh, uh, constipated by its, uh, its century-old uh, conventions that uh, – uh, you know, I, I was tricked until I clicked around and, and educated myself. No, nobody says that. Mm-hmm. They say that about, uh, I see the truth, uh, Peter, but you don't. And that's because the Times didn't have the guts to, uh, yep. to call it out. Uh, one more Trump navel gazing sure. inside media thing. You wrote this really fun column pointing out that, and I think people in media in D.C. certainly know this, but I think people outside are surprised that Donald Trump, while well, he spends a lot of time demonizing the press and literally describing them as the enemy of the people and it's very upsetting. A.G. Salzberger came to our conference and was very upset about it. He loves media, and not just Hannity and and, and uh, Tucker Carlson, right? Mm-hmm. He is constantly reaching out to the beat reporters who write about him, constantly. He's obsessed with wants the to talk intricacies to of uh, coverage, with the personalities of who's... Uh, He's calling him the green room. He's calling him the bar. Uh, of who's, yeah, I came across uh, some instances of that. I was like, well, Trump was trying to track me down. Or I put a request in. They said, sure, we'll get back to you this afternoon. You know, he calls back uh, um, somebody's cell phone. Uh, I don't didn't mean to imply and don't imply now that that's a commonplace that he's uh, just doing that uh, you an example, all an example the time. Of him reaching out to uh, There's definitely reporters that he's uh, interested in and— uh, that he follows and uh, that he reaches out to. And I, to me, I couldn't really find a, uh, an example. You have to go all the way back to, uh, to JFK, totally different era of, uh, of journalism where, where Kennedy would spend a lot of time on the phone with reporters or socializing with them, gossiping uh, with them, gossiping about them. Uh, uh, so I, to me, the paradox is uh, Trump, for all his uh, you know, stated hostility to the— um, uh, the news media, and I, I think at, at some philosophical level, he he does uh, he he does have the mindset of an authoritarian. He feels like the, he shouldn't be challenged. Uh, the, he's also probably more engaged with, more aware of, and, and bluntly pretty accessible to the press in in, uh, in ways I think are his, historically noteworthy. Does that do you sort of underscore the idea that when he goes and tweets and says the New York Times is full of fake news and the enemy of the people and all caps that he 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 thinks he is putting on a show because what he really wants is the New York Times and Maggie Haberman to write a positive story about him, which he said on the record, right? I Didn't deserve, he say that? I deserve, like, hey, a kid from deserve, Queens, yeah, I can't at least I get deserve one a story. story out I of deserve the New York this. Times. Um, does that make you you sort of comfortable knowing that all right, this it's a dangerous show because people aren't going to get the joke, but to him, it's it's a show. That he actually he, he lives for media. That comes close to my view. Yeah. That uh, I think for him it's a show. That doesn't mean to think. I don't mean to endorse the notion that it's a joke because um, I, I don't think so. Uh, and uh, I do think it really his language uh, does erode uh, the kind of civic culture that supports a free press. Uh, and his practice, uh, I think, is, is indefensible, not making the, um, the work of the federal government as uh, accessible and transparent as it can be. Um, I always walk a little bit of a, a, a middle ground here, uh, and I hope not complacently, Peter, but like, I don't really enjoy uh, media getting up, U.S. media getting up on our high horse and talking about how embattled we are and uh, uh, this uh, lonely, brave fight. Um, because uh, I, I think it's really not 
in the fundamental sense, it's not true. And it's sort of— You think it's not true or it's too self-referential? I think it's— it's kind of self-aggrandizing, uh, which is whatever, a little self-aggrandizing. Uh-huh. It's uh, okay. Um, or in uh, media. Especially, <laughs> or in media, and it's yeah. the Trump era. Uh, but it, it becomes, uh, uh, to me, it risks becoming pretty frivolous in comparison to uh, colleagues around the world who really are being thrown in jail or executed or intimidated or kidnapped for incredibly brave work. And so those of us who are reporting on um, Washington and shuffling between TV studios and uh, uh, and uh, book contracts and yep. all the rest. Uh, I think it's unattractive pose for us to be up on our high horse too much. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be vigilant about things that we have a right to know, information that we have a right uh, to, um, uh, to have access to. But uh, with very few exceptions, there, there are U.S. journalists who are facing constitutional impediments or any other kind of practical impediments. Uh, to doing the work that uh, we're supposed to be doing on behalf of the readers. And that's in contrast to lots and lots of places uh, around the world where there there are those impediments. I think the offensive thing about Trump's language is that uh, 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 it, it tends to uh, normalize and validate those places around the world and maybe even embolden uh, uh, yeah, that's uh, the authoritative uh, governments around the country to do those things where there really are threats to, to life and limb. And, and it... it uh, the freedom of the press really is under under uh, mortal assault. Jim Vandehei, who I mentioned several times, your sure. co-founder, uh, along with Mike Allen, some other folks, left Politico a few years ago, created Axios. Yeah. Which is quite sort of similar. I'm sure you, you can explain the, the differences, but but a very similar idea, sort of granular, uh, quick-paced uh, DC coverage and then expanding into some other verticals. Free, but uh, eventually going to have some kind of uh, subscription service they as well. that, yeah. Probably very expensive. Um, it was a sort of famously, famous being among the thousands of people who read these media stories, yeah. uh, an acrimonious split. What's your relationship with Jim Vandehei and that group now? We're friendly. Um, uh, we were uh, friends before we started uh, Politico. In the case of Mike Allen, I go back uh, really now coming up on 30 years. We were both young reporters uh, in Richmond. I was with the Washington Post. He was with the Times-Dispatch. Um, uh, so anyway, it's it's perfectly fine. Uh, did you have to re- level. did you have to repair it at some point after that split? Uh, that was a disruptive year, in which I watched with uh, dismay the relationship between some of the principals and the founders uh, become uh, uh, really rancid, uh, to be honest, and, and watched with deep concern about something that. Um, we uh, had worked very hard to build and now had 500 people, including 500 people uh, depending on us. Uh, uh, I, I saw that being endangered, so I didn't like that. Um, and uh, I did feel that I had a special responsibility uh, and uh, uh, not me alone, uh, other people who uh, kind of rallied in that moment to fight for something that we believed in when I think there were... Uh, People that like, ah, well, this is this is how that startup ends uh, in a blow up and mm-hmm. uh, a collapse. And I think that was even maybe Jim's view. Uh, you know, he had told me at one time, he's like, I don't think Politico's going to last three years. With him gone, with him and Mike and that group gone. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he made it. Congrats. 
Well, uh, we've worked very hard yeah. and we've continued to build a business. It's a what do you have to do? A home in- that's you know two thirds uh, larger than the one we had then. What do you have to do internally? You're the co-founder. You have a sort of moral and then actual like business responsibility to like fix this thing that has lost. Co-founder, star reporters, all the media attention is focused on it. What do you have to do internally to like write what you're doing to get everyone redirected? Say we're going to go ahead. Well, when we started back in the 2006 2007 period, it was it was just us and a very small group of people, and uh, you know that was the real fragile period where you could say, well, the thing might just might not work. Uh, at the time, these events, which I guess is the first part of the uh, first half of 2016, that wasn't true. We had uh, a company of 500-plus people in uh, uh, in the United States and in Europe, a lot of people who really had no connection to the original launch other than that they liked what we had built and, the, and they wanted to be proud of it and wanted to work there. And we had dozens of, uh, of people in leadership roles in that. And I, I think I felt my role at that time was making sure that those uh, dozens of people and then probably uh, most of all the probably a half dozen, maybe a dozen people who were the most important part of that, uh, that they believed in the idea of what we, we were doing and, and that they uh, thought that their responsibilities here were uh, – was good work that uh, uh, you can have a hell of a lot of fun doing. Uh, I mean, that's why we do journalism. We we have fun, have impact, and and uh, so is that you walking around, being visible? Is that you popping in? Let's yeah, have a chat? I think that was what making sure that uh, people felt connection to what was important. Uh, uh, you know, again, not trying to be uh, uh, a scout about this, uh, but I, I think most people. And all of us at the original founding back 12 years ago, we did so for idealistic reasons. And uh, uh, we had bumps uh, along the way, but the, those idealistic reasons for doing our work were, were still valid, and they still are today. Um, and they're still what inspire people I don't even know on our, our teams uh, in some cases. Uh, so, yeah, it was, it was that, uh, trying to focus people on uh, on what's most important, why we do these jobs. And then I would say there were some very specific things. You know, Mike Allen's a terrific uh, talent. I've known it since I first knew him and uh, mm-hmm. we were in our 20s. Uh, so to replace Mike doing the playbook, Jake Sherman, Anna Palmer, uh, they have joined by Daniel Lippman, uh, those guys to keep that franchise going and, and actually grow it, that's a terrific achievement on their part. We, uh, Carrie uh, Budoff Brown and I had to decide who's it going to be. Um, at that time, Susan Glasser, uh, now at the New Yorker was also part of the mix. Mm-hmm. Like who should take over this playbook franchise? So th- th- that's a very this uh, is the, the yeah email. I had some practical yeah. Uh, yeah our, our morning playbook goes out to hundred seventy five thousand or something like that uh, uh, people. We had to replace the authors of that because Mike mm-hmm. uh, was one of them, and Susan Glasser had made clear that she was uh, leaving at the end of the two thousand sixteen campaign. So that was the decision as to who should. Who should take that? It wasn't my decision alone. Of course, any decision like that's the owner's, but I had to make a recommendation to Robert who should take that job. One of our original reporters, uh, Carrie Budoff-Brown, took that job as editor of our U.S. operations. Uh, and uh, so and those were big decisions to make. The, the reporting around the split of the time, sort of lower down in the story, was, well, this is about comp. This is about wanting to own a piece of the company that, that you guys are owned by uh, Albertans, um, and that Jim and Mike and those guys wanted to sort of own a thing 
or own a piece of a thing and went out and did venture. In retrospect, would there have been a way to sort of keep them there where you incent them financially, or was that always just they were going to build their own thing? I don't think so. I, I uh, Without getting into details, uh, we did just fine. <laughs> the group mm-hmm. of people that uh, uh, that started Politico. Uh, it's also true that there is a, an owner who ultimately bears responsibility and makes decisions. And I do think, for reasons I understood, that they wanted to do something where they were the owners. Um, and uh, that, so that's a different experience. I, I don't begrudge them uh, uh, for making that decision. And I don't think it was a... a uh, I think that narrative that there was uh, about comp uh, in a narrow sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, Too narrow. Was, was, it just wasn't the case. We, we all, those of us, we all did fine. Um, uh, and it was never our principal motivation uh, for doing it. And I doubt that that's the principal motivation for those guys now. So th- that part was I, I don't buy. From my vantage point, is we had pretty serious responsibilities. We have 500 people who were reading in the Washington Post, Politico implodes. And uh, I, I felt it was a, an imperative. I would say I felt it was a moral imperative to make sure that that was not true, that that headline was wrong. And uh, I think uh, Robert Albert and Carrie Budoff-Brown, a number of other people, feel rather proud that that, uh, that headline was wrong. Uh, here we are, uh, two-thirds bigger. Uh, in, that's a lot of growth in just uh, three three years and a couple of months. You seem proud too. And you should be. Congratulations. And and thanks for making time to come talk to us. Sure thing. Thanks to you guys for listening. Thanks to Golda and Jelani and Joel who make all this happen. Thanks to our sponsors who let us bring this show to you for free. We'll be back with another episode soon. See you then.